Last week, uh, we talked about how when I hold my baby, I talked about this, how I, when I hold my baby, it doesn't make me feel like the cares of the world are gone. It actually makes me feel super stressed because, uh, you know, she's probably going to die uh, at some point. And that's just kind of how I feel. But uh, I, I talked about mainly like, you know, natural disasters and things like that. Uh, but there's this other reason that I, I think I feel kind of that that stress, uh, that I feel these types of cares when I think about Hazel and, and raising Hazel. And uh, some of those things I said last week are definitely wrapped up in this and connected to this. And uh, in, in one simple word, it's evil. Uh, and it's pretty obvious, I think, that, that evil exists in our world. And I know, I know that, that kind of culturally and, and um, this kind of postmodern uh, generation that, that is now, you know, kind of getting jobs and careers and things like that and growing up, that, that there's this thinking that, that there's no such thing as right and wrong and that, you know, that whatever you kind of think is morality is morality for you and it doesn't really apply to anybody else. But, but if we're being real and honest, I mean, you can have that kind of theoretical view all you want. At the end of the day, I think we all just agree that there is evil, I mean, we look around, and, and no matter where you draw your line on what is evil and what is not evil, I think we all go, oh, that's evil at some point. And we may not use the word evil. We use cruel or terrible or awful or mean or gross or really, really bad, or I don't know what synonym you would use. Uh, but, but I think we all know that, that there, there's this thing that, that's called evil. And evil has been defined as like the absence of good. Uh, and, and I think that, that when we look at evil, that, that maybe that definition isn't, isn't quite good enough because we understand that evil in some ways is more active than just the absence of something. I mean, we can look around the world and go, like, those people are evil or this thing is evil evil and and we don't say that because it's like well it's there's an absence of something we say that because we go well that thing is horrible and it's doing horrible things and it's causing horrible things and and it's all about horrible things and it just it's bad I mean and, and it's trying to create bad and and do bad and and create hurt and, and and make people hurt and things like that and so I think that when we talk about evil it's it's important that we don't just go well it's it's kind of an absence of good, which has its merit, but, but, it, but it's even more. I think we know that, that, it, that it's evil. And we talked about the, the shooting at uh, Umqua Community College last week in my sermon. And we look at that and we go, there's evil behind that. It's not just like a little bit of an absence of God. It's like something something more opposed to God, something more opposed to good, something more opposed to love and, and righteousness, to use a very Christian word, is something that's opposed to like what we value and hold dear and think is, is good on the opposite side of evil. And, and so I, I kind of just use this as a definition of, of evil today. I think that, that evil maybe is just anything that is that is actively opposing God or almost synonymously anything that is actively opposing God, uh, God or good. Uh, you can just pick one of those and I think we can kind of just make that the same thing. So, so it's that which like actively opposes poses God and the things that God is for and the things that God demonstrates to us and the Bible tells us God is love and so we could say evil is that which actively opposes love and, and kind of takes on the opposite form and does things even to tear down love and, and we see this this evil 
all around us. I mean, it seems to exist Every time we turn on the news, it's like, well, oh, evil, that's evil. Somebody, somebody was actively opposing that which is good when they blew that up or shot that person or said that thing. I mean, it just, it's pretty obvious that, that there's a whole bunch that is actively opposing that which is good. And, and as a Christian, I think that which is good is, is that which comes from God. And so actively opposing that which is of God. And we see it really, I'll just read let's four forms, and um, these are not unique to me at all, but, but I think we see that evil in ourselves. There are parts of us that we don't like, and we know that there are parts of us that, that, that actively oppose that which is good, and, and we, we feel this pull for no reason to do things that we don't even really want to do that we know is not good, that's bad. And, and we feel this... Evil, if we're being honest, because we've had thoughts that we just never would have wanted to have, and we've done things that we never would have wanted to do, and, and we've, we've said things that we never would have wanted to say, and we wish we could suck them right back in immediately, and, and it's like, where does that come from? And it's probably some form of evil that exists in you, and you kind of recognize it, and you don't tell people about some of the thoughts that you've had, but you know you've had them, and you're like, how could I possibly ever have thought that right there? How could that ever have come into my brain? Evil. Uh, We see it in other people, and and this is maybe the most obvious in our world today. Like, you can look, like I just said, the news, and you go, that person did something that's evil. I mean, we hear stories about torture and beheadings and bombings and shootings and we hear about people molesting children and kidnapping people for 10 years and and constantly raping them and it's like we that's it's not that difficult to go that's evil i mean that is actively opposing all that we call good all that is good all that is from god and that god has shown us to be good it's evil we see it in the systems of the world do you ever feel if you're a christian Like the whole world and everything that kind of happens in our country on a high level has been like set up to to oppose you living for God. Do you ever just feel like everything is just kind of set up to to make you fail, to make you do things that you don't want to do that you call good? The Bible kind of talks about the world. And when it talks about the world, oftentimes it's just talking about kind of the systems of the world that, that push Things that, that we call not good. Uh, an easy one. The internet is, is just ripe with pornography, right? And, and I don't know that there's anybody out there that if you were, they were sitting with you and looking at you and talking to you and, and really giving you a real answer, not just a kind of a knee-jerk answer, that they would go, oh, pornography is so good. You know, like nobody says that, but yet the system of our world is set up to get people to look at this thing that, that almost, you know, 100% of people would go, that's bad. It leads to other things. It causes bad things. It's unhealthy. It's addictive. It leads to, to really, in some ways, is connected to uh, sex trafficking, and, and, and nobody goes like, that's good, but yet the system of the world is set up to cause people to look at it. That's evil. It's just evil. And then this other thing that is harder to see, I think, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe how I believe, but if we're Christians, you know, we felt this too, and we believe in this, and we read about this, and that's, that's simply Satan. Uh, and, and you might say that Satan is causing the evil in the world in all these other areas, but, but we believe, and I preached on this not too long ago, that there's this dark force, uh, Satan being the leader of, of these demons, and, and he 
prowls around like a lion, the Bible says, looking to devour his prey. And really what he's doing is he's looking to cause good to go away. And he's looking to cause hurt and to tear people down so that which is from God is not lived out, but instead something else is lived out and people are ultimately destroyed. And I think that one of the things that makes us feel hopeless, and we don't identify this, we just kind of point to the symptoms, but one of the things that makes us feel this hopelessness that we often feel is that we recognize, whether we talk about it or admit it or think about it or vocalize it, we recognize that there is evil in the world and it's quite scary. Scary. It's scary to think that there is so much out there that is actively opposing that which is good because there just doesn't seem to be that much good in our world today and then to know that something is trying to tear down that good is a scary thought and and it leaves us feeling I think hopeless go back to my daughter it's like we've brought her into this world, and this is usually, it's not the things that are going to kill her that, that when Brynn and I talk, like, what were we thinking, you know? I mean, we like her and all that, and we're glad for her, but uh, we're glad for her that we have her, but we're not so glad that she has to deal with everything, you know? Uh, and, and, and the biggest thing is, like, these evil things that we see. That, that we are in some ways scared she'll have to deal with on a, on a greater level than we have as our country moves further and further uh, away from Jesus. And when I say our country, I don't mean our government. I mean the people in our country. Uh, and, and so uh, I think that we all, we just go, it's pretty bad and it's pretty evil and it's pretty scary and it doesn't seem like it's ever going to get better. And, and the book of Nahum is a book that's written in the midst of the Israelites, specifically Judah, uh, the southern kingdom of of Israel, uh, facing a really intense evil. And that evil came to them in the form of a city called Nineveh. And so let me just read you the first verse, and then I'll explain about what Nineveh was. This is a prophecy, Nahum 1.1 says, uh, a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The book was probably written, let me just set this up because it's really important when you read the minor prophets, these 12 uh, oracles that are recorded for us in the Old Testament that, that we've labeled the minor prophets, even though they're, they're some of my favorite books in the Old Testament. Uh, they are written uh, with, with very specific things in mind. And oftentimes, and this is important, when we hear the term prophecy, what we think of is somebody telling the future. But what prophecy is most of the time in the Bible is prophecy is somebody saying, this is God's viewpoint on the current situation, on our current culture, on, on what's currently taking place in our nation or in your lives or, or, or in this area or this land or whatever. And so that's important for you. When you think the word prophecy, don't think, you know, primarily God's telling us something that's going to happen in the future, although that's part of it. This is God saying, look, here's the situation, but let me explain it. To you, And God is going to explain something that's futuristic here, but it really speaks into the present situation that the Israelites are facing. And what's happening in between 654 BC and 
Um, and, and excuse me, what's happening is that this is written probably around 654 BC, and it's written in between two major events. The first is the fall of Thebes, which was an Egyptian city that was also powerful. And the other event is the fall of Nineveh, which this book, Nahum, is concerned with. And so right in the middle of that, as the world is kind of shifting, but the Israelites are being heavily persecuted by the Assyrians, uh, the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, is being absolutely cruel to the Israelites, and they don't see that there can ever be an end. Let's just look at a map really quickly of the Assyrian kingdom at the time in which this book was written. And the purple part up there is the Assyrian kingdom. And you can see that this is no joke, right? I mean, Assyria in some ways has taken over the world. I mean, it's not like the whole world as we know it now, but for people living at that time, it was the world. I mean, it just didn't go much beyond these borders. And it's pretty expansive to go that far south and that far north. And you especially think like before there were uh, planes or jets or ability to bomb people from afar to control this much land is pretty incredible. And at the very center of it all was this town called Nineveh that was absolutely cruel and absolutely mean. And they destroyed the people that they wanted to take over. I mean, they would stack up skulls outside the city just to be like, hey, we're cruel, we're mean, we're evil, we are evil, and we want you to know how evil we can be so that you don't mess with us because we'll come to your city and we will destroy you. One author says that to curse such an enemy, the very incarnation of evil, is a way of professing loyalty to God, and that's really in some ways what this passage is about, loyalty to God versus evil. Good versus bad in this book of Nahum. Now, it's interesting because if you know Nineveh at all, just kind of get this out there to put it in some historical context for you. If you know the city of Nineveh, if you've ever heard of it before, then you've probably heard of it from the book of Jonah because Jonah is much more famous than Nahum, even though they write about the same city. And the book of Jonah is about another prophet and his guy named Jonah, go figure. And Jonah's told by God to go to the city called Nineveh. So that he can preach to them and Jonah looks at God and he says to God, I'm not going to go preach to Nineveh because they are, this is what he's thinking at least, they are such a horrible enemy, they are cruel, they are mean, they are evil, and I don't want you to forgive them. Kind of the book of Jonah. And you know the rest of Jonah because he runs and then he gets in a whale. uh, And this is what the kids are watching down the hall this week, swallowed by a fish. And and then he spit up on land and he goes to Nineveh and he offers in the Bible this three-word sermon, like, hey, repent or die, basically. Um, And the people just like, oh, God, we love you. We'll repent. And it's amazing that it works and it's a testimony to God. But but the the reason Jonah ran is because he looked at Nineveh and he's like, they are the essence of evil. They are the essence of that which opposes good. They are the essence of that which opposes our God, the God that we serve, the God of the Israelites, and they hate us and they destroy us. And how can you, how can you forgive them? And they repent, and apparently about 150 years later when Nahum is written, uh, they've, they've already rejected God. And, and if you're like me and Matt and I right there were talking about this just yesterday um, and Drew, uh, we were talking about this, how 150 years when you talk about the Bible seems like really short amount of time. But then when you think about it in like terms of 
like real life. 150 years is a long time for people to flip on their obligations, right? Like think about what's happened in the last 150 years. Uh, like there had never been a world war, you know, before 150 years ago. And now like the world wars are old, like that's ancient history to me. And so you think in 150 years, the people who had repented and said, we'll serve your God, Jonah, are, are completely different from the people that now Nahum is writing about. And they flipped back and they've once again become the essence of evil. And here's what Nahum says, verses two and three. By the way, Nahum means compassion or comfort, which is gonna give us just a little hint into what God is trying to say in this book. Verses two and three, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Check this part out. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Just a cool little note, verses two through nine are an acrostic alphabetic poem in Hebrew. So it just, just to kind of, I think it's fun, I think it's neat, uh, that, that Nahum is actually one of the most poetic books in the whole Old Testament, also one of the meanest books, sounding books. But he, he puts like the first letter like A, and then he gives you a sentence, and like B, and he gives you a sentence, and like C, and he goes down these verses to talk about what's gonna take place using kind of this acrostic alphabetic poem. That's kind of neat, right? Did you care at all about that? So na- next time you read Nahum, I just thought, I thought it was interesting and not really valuable to the point, but uh, makes the Bible a little cooler. Uh, but notice two things that are so important here. Two things. Nahum declares through God that God is slow to anger. You see, Nahum is in essence saying the same thing that Jonah was saying 150 years before about this city, Nineveh. God doesn't want to destroy them. God wants to pour out his love and compassion and his grace and his mercy on these people. God wants to forgive them. It's just a matter of their repentance. And in the book of Jonah, the people repent and God forgives and they're not punished for their evils that they had been committing. But here we see that God adds to his slowness of anger because it reminds us that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. You see, God is saying, I don't want to punish anybody. I don't want to destroy anybody. However, I will punish, destroy that which is evil. I will end that which is evil. And it's important for us to remember for two reasons. First of all, it's important for us to remember because when we look at the evil of the world, God is saying, look, I am slow to anger. I want to forgive these people. I want to forgive that evil. I want to forgive you and your evil. I will. He died on a cross. Jesus died on a cross so that he might forgive the evil in the world. But God is also saying, and the book of Nahum reminds us of that, that while God is slow to anger, eventually, eventually he will punish that which is evil and that which is not repented. And so Nahum offers us kind of a more complete picture in the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, we're just left with a prophet who's angry because God forgives. And he's going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jonah would have loved the book of Nahum. If he could have just stayed alive another 150 years, he would have been on the, he would have been like, this is the book I wanted. Because he's looking going, 
Isn't something going to stop the evil that exists in the world? And God comes along 150 years later and says, yeah, I will. I will if evil continues to be evil and does not repent and choose to do that which is of God, that which is good. I'll continue verses seven and eight. I'm not gonna read every verse, um, by the way, this morning because it's a three-chapter book. Um, and so I'm just trying to hit on the high points and, and kind of get the whole message of the book. Uh, Nahum 1, seven and eight says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. When we feel hopeless, there's three things just in in verse seven that remind us of why we can once again be optimistic about the world. When we look out and we go, wow, it just seems like evil is everywhere. I mean, I turn on the news and there's not a single story about good and it's just, it seems like everybody is going evil and everything is evil and the systems of the world and our country are getting more evil and and, and I have evil in me and these people that I know are evil and it's bad. This book is just three reasons to be optimistic right in this one verse and the first is that, that God is good. God is good. People want to dispute this. People want to say, well, if God is good, how can evil exist in the world? Not a question I care to cover today. There's actually something on our website. Click on the Jesus button on our website, and we have an explanation of that question because it's so common. But I just, I, I, I don't care to cover that today. I just want to say this. God is good. That's important. Evil exists, yes. We all know that. We all see that. And, and, both true, God is good. Because sometimes I think we go, the the evil is going to win. The evil is going to win out because there's so much of it and it, it seems so powerful and so strong and it's going to engulf us and it's going to engulf me. And here in the book of Nahum, God pauses and says, look, Nineveh, because that's the representation of evil, Nineveh's big and strong and powerful and they're engulfing you. You saw the purple on the map. They have taken over the known world. And that's how we feel about evil and God just pauses in the middle of it and, and reminds us that he is good. And I would like to point out that God is God. And he's powerful, it's already said. And that's why we can take confidence. That's why we can be optimistic in the midst of all the the terribleness that exists. Because our God is powerful and our God is good. But it also tells us that we can take refuge in him in times of trouble. And I will admit, I'll just admit that that that's kind of a, a theoretical idea. It's not something that I can point to and say like, how does that work? I mean, how, what do you do to take refuge in God? I think it's getting in his word and understanding his promises and taking hope in him and finding your optimism in him despite all the evil. But we know that we can run towards God in the midst of evil and that God offers us in some way protection from that which is evil. Think of it just maybe like this. I think like in the, in the shooting last week when people were asked, are you a Christian? I think that 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 man and the evil that was inside of him was trying to get those people to say no, was trying to get those people to turn back on their Christianity, was trying to get them to really reject that which is good and that which is God. 
And yet in the midst of it, I think those people probably found their refuge in the ability to simply say yes. It wasn't that God saved their life. It was that they found, I hope and I believe, based on this passage and others, that there was some level of comfort, enough comfort to stand up and go, yeah, you can put a, a bullet in my brain, but, but that which is good will still, will still come out of me. That which is from God will still come out of me because my refuge is not in life. My refuge is in the life giver. You see, we turn to God to find our refuge in the midst of evil, and I think God will deliver uh, that for us. He will be our strong tower. Um, it reminded me of, of the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's like one of the oldest hymns that we have. Uh, Martin Luther wrote it, and um, it's never been one I liked, but uh, the words are quite powerful given this context. A lot of people just agreed with me, it seemed like, right there, so I'm not alone. Um, but, uh, but listen to the words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. He lost me with the bulwark, you know, right at the beginning there. But uh, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. Evil tries to get us, but his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. Our, our, on earth is not as equal. I mean, this, that, that first verse is about Satan, so it's not like a build me up kind of verse, right? I mean, that's, that's what Martin Luther is getting about, but, but he goes on. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask us who that may be, Christ Jesus it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And I think Martin Luther gets right to the heart uh, of, of what God is saying to us in the book of Nahum. Though evil exists and though evil surrounds us, in God we find our mighty fortress. That no matter if they take our lives, no matter if evil kills us off, we still find hope and optimism. Psalms 9, 9 and 10 says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And when we believe that, I think that's when we can find hope. That's when we can find optimism in the midst of all of this evil that can make us so pessimistic about the world in which we live. And then there's this last part. It says, and this could be the most simple, simple thing that God could have said to us, but it's something that we forget and we don't feel at all times in our life. He cares for those who trust in him. Isn't that an incredible promise? that God cares about those who trust in him. I want to make very clear that it doesn't say God cares about everybody in this way. God wants every person to accept him and to come to him, and God died for every person and offered the gift of salvation to every person. I want to make that clear. But when it comes to taking care of us, 
and to providing hope for us, then the care of God only goes as far as those who have placed their trust in him. The Bible says that God sends rain on both those who trust in him and follow him and those who don't. And so God provides for people who don't love him, who reject him, who who are all about that which is evil. But when it comes to providing optimism, this optimism only applies to those who have placed their trust in God through the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. When we come to the prom, and I see people who do this, they want to take the promises of the Bible without taking the God who has given those promises. And I want to look at them and be like, it's not for you unless you choose to make it for you by choosing Jesus. I think just one of the greatest reasons to become a Christian, I've said this more than once in sermons, one of the greatest reasons to become a Christian is is what we sang earlier, uh, that in all things God is working for are good. And, and that, while you may be not a Christian, you may be here this morning, you may be singing, while, while it's a nice thing to sing, it's only true for those of us who are, 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 are trusting in God. God doesn't promise to make all things good for those who don't love him. The promise is that God makes all things, he works all things unto good for those who do love him, who have come to him through Jesus. And man, while heaven's going to be great and I look forward to heaven, it's really hard for me to really take a hold of that and go, be a Christian. I, I mean, I say this and we say this, but be a Christian because you get to go to heaven. That's awesome, but we're pretty short-sighted as human beings, right? It's like, well, what have you done for me lately? What is God gonna do for me tomorrow? And I'll tell you this, that, it, that if you come to God, then, then you can know that he is caring for you, not just like he cares for you and he loves you in kind of a general sense, but that he cares for you like a dad cares for his children. And he's looking out for you and that anything he allows to happen for you, he is saying that is for your best. That is for your good. You see, when I look around and I see evil, it's easy to just go, I'm going to be pessimistic. But when you read this, it reminds us of why we can be optimistic if we have placed our trust in God. It's because God is good and God is our refuge and God cares, cares for us. I would say is taking care of us. But Nahum continues. It's even better. He says in one thirteen. now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. A, a yoke, we have a few pictures of this. It's a, it's a wooden, you probably knew this, but it's a wooden cross piece that is fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to the plow or cart that they are to pull. It looks absolutely terrible to me. Um, I, I just, it looks terrible. Um, and I just, Makes me think that it should be illegal for us to do this to animals, but um, I'm from Oregon and I really like animals, so take it for what it's worth. It's not biblical or anything, but, but it seems mean, right? And, and it's actually a great picture that the Bible uses throughout the Bible, that God uses throughout uh, the Bible to say really what God does for his people, those who place their trust in him. Exodus 6, 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And then God takes the Israelite people, and he sets them free from the hand, uh, from underneath the hand of the oppression of the Egyptians who, who were being cruel to them, who were demonstrating evil, who were fighting against that which is good, and God sets them free from that and makes them into his holy nation, his, his holy people. And then we go to the New Testament. 
And in Matthew, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me because already if you were born into this world, then the evil exists causes you to be a slave, to be yoked by things that you don't want to be yoked to and that tear you down and hurt you. You ever look at people who have lived hard lives and they've been surrounded and wrapped up in evil and you could just see it in their faces almost, how heavy this yoke is, how much of a burden it is that they've been living without any freedom from, from evil, some of their own doing, some of their parents doing, some of the world's doing to them and you just look and you go, wow, that's heavy. You've faced heavy things. And Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, here's what you do. If you want to be set free from all of that, if you want to not, no longer be, be yoked or enslaved to evil, then take me and trust in me because my yoke is light and my burden is easy. And in Galatians 5.1, we read this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm in them and do not... Let yourselves be burdened again by, the, by a yoke of slavery. I mean, the Bible, the New Testament says to us over and over and over again, we were slaves to sin and death. That means we were unable to get out of sin and we were unable to avoid death, eternal death even. And Jesus died on a cross, paying the punishment of that sin, dying for that death so that we might be set free and taken out of the yoke of that slavery. And when we look around the world, one of the great things that I think provides us hope, that when we look around at the world and we go evil, 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 if we place our faith in Jesus, if we become trusters of God, then we can go, wow, it exists, but it doesn't enslave me. Isn't that a big difference? It exists, but it doesn't any longer enslave me. I have been set free. I have been broken free from, from it, from evil. I think that has huge applications. The first is that we are able, that evil that I talked about that just kind of rises up within us sometimes, it doesn't have to rise up anymore. We don't have to give in. We don't have to follow those instincts that are evil that are in us. We can do something else because we have been set free from that yoke. I think it goes further. I think when we look around and we see people doing evil, they no longer have power over us because they can kill us. I mean, evil can take our very lives and yet we know that when it does, we are still free. And so when we look at the evil in the world, it's like, you can't, you can't do anything to me anymore. Sure, you can destroy this body, but the one who can destroy my soul has accepted me and loved me and shown me grace and mercy and kindness. And so you can't do anything to me. You can only hurt this outside shell that eventually I will no longer be in. And then I think it does this other thing that's really at the heart of our, of our series here. And that's that it allows us to look at the evil and go, I don't have to fear it anymore. The fear is gone because I've been set free from the yoke of the slavery of that which is evil. I'm free from it. And so while it exists, I know that I have a God who has saved me and forgiven me and that ultimately, ultimately, I will enter into an eternity where evil has been completely wiped out just as Nineveh was a long time ago. I mean, and, and it's crazy 
Because Nahum is saying these things before these people could have understood all that which it meant. I mean, they had no idea. They had an idea. They had, they had a, a very small concept of, of this idea of a Messiah, Jesus, who would come and who would die for the sins of the world to make these things ultimately true. They were just true in some physical sense that God would make Israel a better country, but there would still be an evil. But we look back on the book of Nahum and go, man, alive. God has done it. And I am no longer yoked. By slavery, I have been set free. Nahum 1.15. I think this is like the most practical advice in the whole book. It says, look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Check this out. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. The good news for the Israelites, for Judah is that God is going to deliver them from the hand of the Assyrians. And here's the cool part. The good news that's spoken of in the Bible, good news is the, is the same word in the New Testament. When it gets translated good news, the same word is gospel. And the good news, the gospel is always about God's deliverance. And we believe, again, that Jesus died and rose again for the sins of people so that we could be delivered out of darkness and sin and death. And Nahum looks at these people and goes, hey, by the way, good news, God will deliver you. And we know that that's been true throughout history. Isaiah 52, 7 almost says the same thing. It was talking about a different country, the Babylonians. And he almost says the same thing, but he adds to it. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And then we flip to the New Testament. And in Romans, Paul quotes Isaiah and says almost the same thing to us about the story of Jesus. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul and Isaiah and Nahum all write the same thing for us. The declaration of God's deliverance is that which is good news. And I would say it's that which brings us hope and it's that which makes us optimistic despite all the evil that exists all around us. When we hear good news, it makes us joyful, right? It makes us feel more hopeful. It makes us more optimistic. Have you ever got good news in the middle of a really bad week? And it just, it does something to you. You go, at least something good happened this week. You even like to hear other people's good news on some bad weeks. You know, if it's bad enough, it's like, oh, cool. You're going to Disneyland. You know, I mean, that's, at least somebody's having fun here. And the gospel is that same concept magnified infinitely. In the midst of this evil, evil, evil world that should only make us pessimistic and hopeless, God sent his son to die on a cross so that we might be delivered from all that evil. And it's the greatest piece of good news the world has ever known. And if you're feeling sad or you're feeling hopeless, feeling pessimistic, you're feeling like the evil will never stop, you just look and go, oh wait, the greatest news the greatest news is the gospel, and that story has been told.
We find hope. We find optimism because of Jesus, because of the good news. And, and here's the practical part. And I love this. I love this practical part. Let me just repeat it. He says, celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. He says, here's what you do. Right now, you start to respond to what God is going to do. And and for us who are Christians, we can look back at Jesus and see that God has already delivered us. But we also look forward to heaven when when ultimate delivery from evil will take place and everything will be good. And, And Nahum just says to us, here's the deal, here's the deal. Right now in this moment, what I want you to do is I want you to celebrate the work of God and I want you to be obedient to him. The most pessimistic Christians I know seem to have this idea. And I don't mean they're pessimistic about Christianity. They're just kind of hopeless. You know, they feel hopeless a lot. And part of that's how we're wired. But, but there's this, this thing that I've noticed in them, and it's this. I will celebrate and rejoice in what God has done for me. And even I'll choose to be obedient to him. That's to a less degree, I see that. But I'll choose to be obedient to him once I feel better about the situation that I'm in. Once God makes me feel good about my current situation, then I will start to be obedient to him and, even more, I will celebrate God. If my feelings just kind of come around, then I will rejoice in what God has done for me. I'll, I'll, I'll sing better and I'll, I'll pray more and I'll be more excited about him and I'll talk about God more and I'll tell God that I'm thankful that, that he gave the ultimate sacrifice. I, I'll get around to that as soon as I feel good about it. And Nahum writes, it's, just think about it, I mean, it's, it's easy looking back and seeing what happened, but Nahum writes to these people who are in the middle of the Assyrian kingdom, their bitter enemy has taken them over in all of the known world, and they are like nothing, even though they used to be a great kingdom. Everything was great for Israel at one point, but now they are nobodies who are being, you know, beaten and, and, and really just they're enslaved, uh, not like slavery, but they're enslaved to what the Assyrians want. And they're being treated with cruelty and they're in the middle of evil. The very existence of evil. And Nahum goes, God's going to do something. Here's what I want you to do in the meantime. I want you to celebrate what God has done. And I want you to be obedient to him. You see, I think one of the reasons that, that we as Christians, especially in our world today, are, are so pessimistic. And you look around and, I mean, we're, we're calling persecution at every corner and, and it seems, it, doesn't it feel like we're just losing all the time? I mean, just like Christians, we have this, we've come to this mentality where it's like our backs are against the wall and, and we are losing and, and it's really bad for us and this used to be a Christian nation and uh, it's all going downhill and, we ha- and, and those things, take them as true or not true, I don't really care, but, but it's, the, it's the attitude and, and the heart that you start to see that, that rises to the surface and you, you just, if you could summarize a, a lot of Christianity today, wouldn't the word be pessimistic? It's like Christians are known for what they're against and what they're worried about and what they're freaked out about and, and what they hate and who they hate and, and all these things. It's like you just feel like a, a pessimist. You've been around pessimistic people. And, and that's Christianity in our country today. We just seem like these pessimistic people. And I think there's this mentality that if we vote the right guy in or, or we get the right things fixed or if we can you know, beat the right organization or, or if God can just stomp some people down, then we're gonna start rejoicing again 
And we'll get back to really what God has told us to do in the first place. And Nahum says to us, through saying to Judah, wait a minute, God's already done a bunch of stuff for you. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to right now celebrate God. And I need you right now to be obedient to God. And remember that God's gonna do something great in the future too. If you're pessimistic, if you're a person who, and we'll talk about suffering, and, and um, we talked about suffering last week, and we'll talk about uh, you know, other things that, that cause us to be pessimistic, but whatever it is for you, um, whatever it is for you, if you're just a person who's kind of hopeless, you just kind of have a pessimistic attitude about the world in which we live and is connected to evil specifically or anything else, then I think one of the greatest things you can do is start to rejoice in what God has done for you already and make sure that you're being obedient to him. I think it's pretty difficult to wake up, and we, just, we did a whole singing series, but I think it's pretty difficult to wake up, sing a bunch of songs about God's redemption for us, and then go to work and be a pessimist. I mean, it's really hard to go, you know, hey, God, I'm so thankful I get to go to heaven someday. And I'm so thankful that I've been set free from the yoke of slavery. Oh, but everything is terrible. You know what I mean? It, because it's not terrible. Because we have the good news. We have the greatest news. And Nahum continues, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. You see, what's cool about this book is that it's primarily a passage about the consolation of Israel. And I want to point out, and I pointed this out last week, that the Israelites have been given over to the Assyrians as punishment by God. I mean, God had allowed the Assyrians to beat his people in battles and wars because the the Israelites had chosen to reject their God. And so while Nahum has been called an angry book, uh, some people actually discredit the book of Nahum because they think it's, it's a guy that just sounds bitter and angry about this other country. Uh, it's primarily a book about mercy. The Israelites des- deserved, like I said last week, to be punished forever. And God is now writing to the Israelites and saying, despite all that you have done, I am going to offer you my mercy, my grace, my love, and I'm going to restore your fortunes. He continues in verses 11 through 13. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went and the cubs with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with prey. I am against you declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Don't lions represent pretty well how we feel about evil? I mean, right now in our world, we feel like the evil is standing face to face with lions. I saw this, Bryn showed me this picture the other day. This is funny. Just sometimes I'm not funny enough in my uh, sermons. And then when I say something I think is funny, you guys don't laugh and I feel bad about it. But uh, this, so Bryn showed me this picture. Um, and here's what it says. And I edited this because there was a swear word and then some things that didn't make sense. Um, but you'll get the point anyway. So he, he, this guy writes this with this picture. Lions aren't very good climbers, but they can jump 36 feet. 
No, they can leap 36 feet, as in leap forward 36 feet. They don't jump 36 feet into the sky. Do you know how terrifying that would be? The human race wouldn't have survived because we'd have all had heart attacks. It's good, right? It's funnier the longer you think about it, I think, because we, I like read it and then I, I've, it's like the funniest thing I saw a week. And that's how we feel about the evil in the world. It's like this lion that jumps 36 feet in the air and we're all about to have heart attacks because we're so pessimistic and God shows up on the scene and says, here's what I'm gonna do about that evil. Eventually it will be gone because I will end it. Man, eventually God will get rid of all that is evil. You, if you have placed your trust in God, will no longer have to deal with it anymore. And I want to point this out because, and, and I wrote this because at first I, I actually wrote this and, and didn't use the word evil when I was putting this sermon together. I used the word enemies, um, but, but as I thought about it and, and, you know, looked at the book of Nahum more, it just seemed like it was more about the evil that was represented in Nineveh and not the enemy. But I want to point this out. If that which you deem as evil is not against the Lord, then it's probably not actually evil. Because some of you, I think you look and you go, well, that and that and that, and does this apply? And it, it might not. Evil is that which is against the Lord, and and that which is against the Lord will ultimately go away. He continues, Nahum 3, 1 and 3 through 4. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Many casualties, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. The prophet of Nahum links up with subsequent history of Revelation, one author says, inasmuch as it is the antithesis between Assyria and Judah is deepened to represent the power, the world power as enemy of God and his kingdom. This is especially evident in the description of Nineveh as a harlot, which is a figure reflected in the visions of Revelation. In the announcement of judgment upon this enemy, the people of God are consoled. Nahum says, look, Prostitution is a representation of evil throughout the Bible. Uh, Prostitution, evil, it will be destroyed by God. And then he says this last thing, nothing can heal you, for your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? Evil will go away. And that, the people who trust in God, that which is for God, even things that aren't people, I mean, uh, the angelic forces in heaven, we will all celebrate the day in which we no longer face this evil. And, And if you think, and I just think this is great proof, how do I know? How do I know that God is big enough and strong enough and powerful enough to actually deal with this evil that I face? And how do I trust that that someday God is actually going to come back and he's going to do something about this? I say it's because he's promised. And how do I know that God comes through on his promises? Quite a few ways. But one of them is that Nineveh went away. I mean, I just want you to ponder this for a second. Nineveh, the capital city of the greatest kingdom in the world covering the whole entire known world, falls in 612 BC. And then in 609 BC, Nineveh completely disappears from everything. God said, look, you're gonna go away. You're gonna get destroyed. And he says this a long time before when Nineveh still has some power and it's still the capital city of the greatest kingdom in the world. And guess what happens to Nineveh? 
They go away right after Nahum declares that's what God is going to do. And you know what it's found again? In an excavation in 1846 AD. 1846. Over a thousand years later, almost 2,000, over 2,000 years later, this, this nation reappears. And let me just show you two pictures to represent how it, it reappears in case you go, well, God wasn't really right because they came back. Let me show you the first picture, how they believe Nineveh looked when the book of Nahum was written, when it was, when it was at its highest power. Here's about all that's left of it today. You can go to Iraq and look at it. And ISIS has actually bombed it recently, if you just get on the news and look up Nineveh. So it's not even doing so well now as a wall. I mean, that's it. And so when we look at the evil of the world, and God says, someday I'm going to get rid of it, and you're going to live in eternity with me in perfection, and there will be no more evil, we can just look at Nineveh and go, God doesn't make things up. And while it seems impossible... God can do that which is impossible if he can destroy Nineveh. I mean, it, it's as if, hopefully this will never be true, God said, here's what I'm going to do. You won't know Washington, D.C. anymore because America is going to be destroyed. You won't know Washington, D.C. anymore in about 50 years. Go, no way. That can't happen apart from a divine act. That cannot happen apart from a divine act. And God says it, and it came true. I read this blog post this week about a girl who was talking about a, a sin uh, that she really struggled with, uh, same-sex attraction, uh, Christian person. She was talking about how low she got giving in to this sin and, and uh, just all types of sexual um, immorality. And she, she says at this one point in the blog, before it kind of goes uphill, the climax kind of, uh, I felt cursed and punished by God like I was tainted from conception and at one point was convinced, notice this part, that Satan owned me and God was not powerful enough to get me back. And that's the pessimism I think we feel when we look at the world's evils. And God steps into the midst of that and reminds us through the book of Nahum that he is good and that he is our refuge and that he cares for us and that he is slow to anger but he will destroy evil and that God has set us free who trust in him from the yoke of evil and so we can celebrate his blessings and be obedient to him now knowing that he is merciful and ultimately will restore all those who place their faith in him and destroy all that is evil. And so when you feel pessimistic, just remember who God is, what God has done and be optimistic, celebrating all that he is and all that he has done. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you for this book, Lord, that reminds us that, that, that evil exists and evil has always existed, but that you have always been a kind, loving, gentle God who is willing to take care, who does take care of, of those that you love and that love you and have chosen to love you, God. I pray, Lord, that every person in this room who will listen online that doesn't know you as their Savior, who haven't placed their trust in you, would place their trust in you so that they can know that you are caring for them and that ultimately they, they will live in eternity, eternity without this evil that we so clearly see. And God, I pray for every person here that trusts in you as their Savior, and I pray that right now they would find in themselves, and moving forward, they would find in themselves the courage to rejoice and be obedient to you no matter how they feel, and the courage and the ability, the willingness 
and fortitude to trust in you as a God who cares and a God who loves and a God who offers mercy and a God who is a refuge and a God that is strong and a God who is good. Let us take hope in that despite the evil that exists. We love you, Lord. And we together pray in in your holy name these things. Amen.